You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles together, first of all, to the Old Testament, to Isaiah 65, the verses 17 to 25. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its peoples a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, but dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain says the Lord. Then we turn briefly to Romans chapter 8, the verses 21, 22, and 23. Well, let's begin at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I preach to you this afternoon the word of our God as you find it in Revelation 21, the verses 1 to 8. And there the Holy Spirit leads the Apostle John to write, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And he said, write this down, 
for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, it can be said that in some way, renovation runs in our blood. You buy an old motorcycle or an old car, and after a while, at least, if you have the time, the ability, and the money, you cannot wait to renovate or to restore it. You're just itching to get at it. And the same goes for houses. You purchase an old home, and in no time at all, you make plans to change it, improve it, perhaps expand it and renew it. And in approaching it, you may be a a piecemeal artist undertaking first this and then that change without any perhaps apparent plan or budget, or you may be the very organized type who will not tackle anything without a very clear and spelled out game plan. Whatever the case may be, a lot of us know something about this business of renovating. But it has to be said this afternoon, beloved, that none of us know as much about it as the Lord our God. You might say, and that's perhaps a different way of thinking about him, but he is in some ways and in many ways the ultimate renovator. And why do I say that? Because as God, his ways and plans are perfect. As God, too, his ability is unlimited. He doesn't worry about budgets, about materials, about looks. Everything is under control. And as well, his skill is beyond measure. No one knows about as much about beauty, about symmetry and harmony as he does. And no one has a monopoly on perfection as he has. In short, God, our God, can renovate better than anyone else in the entire world or in the whole wide universe. And of course, in response to this, you may be thinking to yourself, well, that's nice to know, but so what? What difference does it make? And how does this impact me today? What does it have to do with me personally? Well, beloved, as we turn to our text of this afternoon... You can see that, in a way, this has everything to do with us, with you and me and all of us here. For there we come face to face, not just with the greatest renovator, but with the greatest renovation project of all time. Look at verse 5. What does God say there? I am making everything new. Everything. And that's also our theme for this afternoon's sermon. I am making, the Lord God says, everything new. Now, beloved, as we turn to our text and we take a closer look at what it says here in the verses 1 to 8, you can divide it into three parts. 
The first part found in the verses 1 and 2 describes what John saw. Notice verse 1 begins, then I saw. Verse 2 begins, I saw. Now, as such, of course, you may recall from the previous sermons in this series, this is nothing new. John, as we have noted, has been doing a lot of seeing throughout this entire last book of the Bible. It begins already in chapter 1 where he sees someone like a son of man. And then in in chapter 4, he sees a door opening into heaven. And thereafter, he sees living creatures, elders, angels, a throne sitter. Later on, he sees a scroll, a mighty angel, a lamb, four angels at the four corners of the earth, a great multitude, seven angels, another mighty angel, a beast, more angels, kings, armies, and so forth and so on. And by the time you come to chapter 21, John has seen so much. And we say to ourselves, his eyes must have been tired by now. You know how it is, perhaps, if you've gone out for a day and you've been busy sightseeing through the entire day, by the time you come home, you complain about sore eyes. Well, imagine John's predicament. He's seen so much, so much that's wonderful and mysterious, even frightening and astounding, even mind-boggling. And yet, even though he has seen so much, beloved, he hasn't seen it all. Indeed, the best and the most awesome stuff is yet to come, and it begins here in chapter 21. Turn to verse 1. Read with me. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. All of a sudden, notice what John sees gets immeasurably enlarged. And suddenly he's looking no longer at events or or things that are taking place somewhere on the earth or perhaps in a corner of heaven. No, what he sees, he says, is this new heaven and this new earth. Before his eyes, the entire cosmos is being changed. And note as well, this is not just a case of a renovation job being done on earth or a part of it. Or This is about the whole earth. And this is not just about a corner of heaven as if heaven we think is perfect and doesn't need to be changed. Well, it does, because this is also about the whole heaven. It's all being changed. John says he sees everything before his eyes. Being redone. But of course that raises the question in what way? And I think we have to be humble enough to say we cannot say completely. There is a lot of mystery here. But it's interesting to notice that there are actually in the Greek language two words for new. The one word new describes newness in the sense of of having something refreshed or something renewed or renovated. The other Greek word for new describes newness in the sense of something hitherto unknown. 
Something improved upon, changed in a whole new way. So which word does John use in Revelation 21? He uses the second word for new. You see, when John says that he's seeing before his eyes a new heaven and a new earth, he's referring to a renovation job, yes, but then to a renovation job unlike anything else that has ever been seen before or imagined. This is a renewal unlike any other. This one has the capacity to blow your mind and your senses and your imagination. It will take your breath away. And in some ways, we can see why this is so. For look, John writes, the first heaven, the first earth has passed away. Quite simply, this creation, this world, this universe, this life will be no more. It'll be wiped away, gone, vanished, over. In some ways, that'll be like a house that's totally gutted. And also, John writes, there will be no longer any sea. You might wonder, what does that mean? Does that mean there'll be no water, no liquid, no oceans, no lakes in the world to come? Will it be devoid of all liquid? No. Be careful. Remember, we're dealing with symbols here. And for what this means is that the sea is, in Revelation, a a reservoir of Evil and chaos. And that's what will be no more. You remember Revelation 13, verse 1, who comes out of the sea? The beast. All the ugly stuff comes out of the sea. And so when John says no longer any sea, he's saying no longer any persecution, any suffering. Anything that attacks or hurts or undermines or destroys the children of God or the earth. So, beloved, the picture that starts to emerge is the old creation is disappearing. The sources of evil and enmity are being eradicated. And on the other hand, you see a whole new heaven and a whole new earth. And along with it, you see something else. He sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, from God. And thus, how beautiful is it? Well, it's like John writes as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And indeed, isn't that one of the most stunning sights that you can see with Our human eyes, a bride waltzing down the aisle in all of her exquisite finery. Is there a more beautiful sight than that? And so is the sight of this this city. And I wonder, for a look where it's coming from, John says it's coming from heaven, it's coming from God. And then, of course, you may wonder, well, now what does this city actually symbolize? What does it represent? Well, you're going to have to wait for an answer for the next sermon, hopefully in the summer, when we'll talk about the church, the new Jerusalem as the people of God. So more about that later.
But for now, it's important for us to grasp that, that this, what John describes, this is, is part of our, our future. This is the future of the children of God. And it's a future in which everything old and evil is destroyed and in which everything great and glorious is, is present in abundance. It's a future in which one heaven and one earth passes away and another radically improved upon is coming. It's a future in which the children of the new Jerusalem will live and rejoice as never before. If you're a child of God, then this is your new future home. For you're here, your eternal home is being described. And that goes for all of us who believe. Also for Mason as he grows and as he embraces and as he matures in the Lord, his God and Savior. He too, like all of us as pilgrims, is on the way to that eternal destination. To that spectacular new heaven. A new earth. But then, beloved, if that's what John is busy seeing, next we note he also gets busy hearing. If you turn with me to verse 3, where we're told, And I heard, John writes, a loud voice from the throne. So this is not some still, small voice coming somewhere out of a closet somewhere or a voice that's easily drowned out. No, this voice is is loud. And as well, this is not a human voice or an insignificant voice. No, it comes from the throne. Quite simply here, headquarters is speaking. This voice is coming from the source of all power and might. And authority. And so we wonder, well, what does this voice have to say? What is it that, that John now suddenly hears instead of sees? What momentous news does it convey? Well, the message is this. Now the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. So what's the message? God and man are going to live together. And they're going to experience the ultimate form of communion and intimacy. And if you think of it, what a communion. In some ways, it's like it was in the very beginning of time. That's what Adam and Eve had in the garden long, long ago. But you know very well, it, it didn't last. Man ruined it. He, he botched it. Our, our sin destroyed the communion and erected this huge barrier between God and us. And it was only when Jesus Christ came and broke down the barrier that newness began. And ever since that Good Friday, we have been waiting and waiting for the full and the final effects of that breach 
to come into our lives. Well, here John is announcing the coming of that day. He can hear it coming. He can hear that God is coming to restore the communion. Notice, his voice is full of withs. The dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them. God himself will be with them. Quite simply, God will be with us. Around us, in us, beside us. He's no longer going to live far away in heaven. Jesus Christ, His Son, will not simply be spiritually present among us. No, He'll be both bodily and spiritually present. And at last, you're going to know what full, perfect, complete communion is about. You may sing about sweet communion, but you haven't tasted anything yet. And how do we know? How can we be sure? Well, look at what God will do. First of all, it says he will wipe every tear from their eyes. All the tears of sorrow, sickness, sadness, death, brokenness, suffering, persecution will be gone. And God himself will do the wiping away. Like a mother. Like a father. He'll wipe it all away. And it says there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. In other words, all the, the nasty stuff will be gone. Everything that puts a damper on your life, that crimps your joy, will be wiped away. The voice puts it like this. The old order of things, the old, broken, sin-polluted, defiled order will pass away. It's gone. And so we say, wow, what do we not have to look forward to, beloved? What a future. It's a future that's great because of this new heaven, this new earth will inhabit and live and work in. It's a future that, that's great because it'll be filled with beauty and harmony and an utter absence of evil and of sin. And it'll be great. Because it'll be filled with relationship. You know, I've never been there, but I'm told also by some of you that Hawaii is a beautiful place. But you know, even if it's a beautiful place, it's, it's not necessarily a beautiful place if you're there all alone. If you don't have someone with you, someone whom you know, someone perhaps whom you love to, to share it with, all the beauty can kind of evaporate. Well, the new heaven and the new earth is going to be better, folks, than Hawaii. Much better. But you know what will really make it stand out? Is the fact that we're going to get to enjoy it 
the best place anywhere with our great God and Savior, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with all of God's people throughout the centuries with us and beside us. And together, that's what's going to make it really, really great. And I don't know about you, but I can hardly wait. But alas, I have to wait a little longer, and so do you, and and so does Mason here. This calls, the Scripture says, for patience. You know, the apostles speak often about patient endurance throughout this life. But how does one endure with patience? Well, the answer lies in what John points to next. John is now, in the third place, told to write, to write something down. You see, first he sees, then he hears, and now he writes. And what is he told to write? Well, you can say that he's told to write some serious and some accurate words. The voice from the throne says, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You might wonder what's meant by these words. Is that a reference to what's already been spoken, to words about the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, about God living with his people and and God making everything new? And while we wouldn't want to exclude all of that, what's already been stated, it may be better to see it as a reference to what is about to be said, about to be spoken. So what is John told to write down? This. It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all of this and I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now you understand these are loaded words. First, they tell us something more about the one who sits on the throne. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In other words, our God is not just present at the beginning and present at the end. No, He is the beginning. And He is the end. He's the source, in other words, and the goal of all things. He ordains the time and all the events in between. He covers all things, all times, all peoples. And so now this all-comprehensive God, you may call Him, He sends out a warning. A warning for the interim. Through John, He warns His people, and indeed all people, that in between John's time of writing and the end of time, The choice will repeatedly have to be made. And the choice is this. Will you be numbered among the thirsty, 
or among the cowardly? Will you be living your life as one who searched for the living God or as one who rejects the living God? Will you be, in the words of John, an overcomer or a submitter? A son? A daughter? Or a rebel? The choice is clear. The options are evident. And so, by the way, is the outcome. Because John says it here, and he'll say it again just in case we didn't hear it later on in the next chapter. All who opt to live cowardly, unbelieving, vile, murderous, immoral, superstitious, idolatrous, deceptive lives will end up in the fiery lake. Burning sulfur. These people will get to join Satan and his ilk. For remember, that's where they are now. And I have to say, and I don't really want to say this, but, you know, there are so many people today living careless, dangerous lives. They snub their nose at God, at His Word, at His Son, at His church. They live lives full of wickedness, abandon, and and lawlessness and selfishness, they mock and jeer at the very idea that there should be a day of reckoning or judgment. How dare God? But John says, look at people, you're playing with fire. With a fiery lake. Burning sulfur. And I know it's symbolic. But it's symbolic of what? Of the very last place that you'd ever want to go to. Who wants to end up in a lake? Who wants to end up in a fiery lake? Who wants to be ending up in a fiery lake filled with the fumes of sulfur? You know what that smells and stinks like? There isn't a worst image. So John's warning. Warning those who turn their backs on the message of the gospel. At the same time, John is also reminding us, thankfully, this is not the only outcome. He says there are also the thirsty, thank God. Those who in a way belong, you might remember, to the sons of Korah, who in Psalm 42 say they thirst for God, for the living God. Those who yearn for Him, who pour out their hearts to Him, who turn to Him, who long to worship Him, who hunger for Him, and who confess my Savior and my God. There are those who struggle, resist, And overcome. Those who refuse to let go of their sonship. And to such people. God promises a vastly different outcome. It'll have nothing to do with sulfur. Nothing to do with a lake filled with torment. But everything to do, first of all, notice with the family. He overcomes. I'll be his God. He'll be my son. He'll be part of my family. 
He'll be a divine son, a divine daughter. He'll be an heir. And not only with a family, but also with an oasis. To the thirsty of heart, he promises a place of springs of water. Free water, refreshing water, life-giving water. Quite simply, he promises the gift of life to those who overcome. Eternal, everlasting, joyful, rich, abundant life. Truly, it's a case, isn't it? No contest. The fiery lake cannot hold a candle to the cool oasis. Do you realize that? Do you teach your children to realize that as well? Do you see the difference? It's better by far. John says to belong to the thirsty. For to such belongs not just the springs of living water, but also the new heaven and the new earth that's coming, as well as the new Jerusalem that's coming down. Our God is coming down to make everything new. And that means there's old broken world and there's old groaning creation. And also, there's old sinful flesh of mine. He's coming to make it all new again. And I can hardly wait. What about you? Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.